the world has questions. In fact, even some so-called Christians will have questions. But if you follow Christ faithfully, you will have answers. The answers are found in the king and his kingdom. The king and his kingdom. Again, we see here in chapter 10 that Jesus is giving his disciples answers and equipping them to be disciples and to be different. He gave them answers. Answers this morning concerning questions of marriage, children, and the kingdom of God. Marriage and the kingdom of God. The Bible says here that Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. And once again, he goes by way of Judea. He's probably made this trek several times as he's gone up to Jerusalem for several reasons. But this time he's making his way through Judea on his way to the cross. But once again, the crowds begin to gather. They see that Jesus is coming through and they recognize who Jesus is and the crowds begin to gather. And as we've seen in the gospel of Mark, when the crowd begins to gather, Jesus delights to begin to teach them. He's instructing them and he's teaching them concerning the the things of the kingdom of God and what it means to be a disciple of the king. And naturally, as the crowds are beginning to gather around Jesus, some of those crowds are leaving from gathering around the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, once again, take this opportunity, therefore, to attack Jesus, seeking to discredit him among the people. And in order to do this, what they do is they sought to put Jesus to the test. They sought to prove Jesus, to tempt him. And this is not the first time they have done this. In fact, this is a common practice of the Pharisees. We see this in Matthew chapter 16 in verse 1 where the Bible says they gathered there and they put Jesus to the test. This is not just the practice of the Pharisees, but this is is a sign of a malicious heart. Has malicious intent. You see this in Matthew chapter 22 in verse 18, when Jesus sees that those who had come to tempt him and to test him, they did so because of the maliciousness that was in them. And the reason that this is so malicious is because ultimately this is the work of Satan himself. See that in Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus is going out into the wilderness. And as he goes out into the wilderness, the Bible says he goes out there and is tempted, tested by Satan. So here you have the Pharisees manifesting a malicious heart, ultimately doing the work of Satan in coming to test and tempt Jesus. In order to do this, They try to put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. They ask Jesus a loaded question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? 
Now, they know this is a trick question. You know, it's one of those, those, those loaded questions that people ask. Have you stopped beating your wife? Well, that's a loaded question because we know if you answer yes or you answer, if you affirm that or you deny it, either way, you're caught in the dilemma. Like the salesperson calls on you on the phone and they're trying to sell you their product. And after they have given you their, the pitch, they say, okay, now will that be cash or charge? As if there's not a third option. <laughs> so they try to tempt Jesus. And Jesus turns the question back on them. Instead of falling, falling prey to the maliciousness of their heart, to the trickery of Satan, Jesus turns the question back on them by asking, well, what does Moses, what does the law have to say about this? And they respond. And they respond by quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, which is there in the Old Testament. They're singularly in the Old Testament is the most clear description or designation of what it means for the Israelite man to divorce his wife. A man may divorce his wife if, it says in Deuteronomy chapter 24, if he finds no favor with her because he has found some indecency in her. They knew this. They knew that Moses had prescribed this reason right here for a man being able to offer a certificate of divorce to his wife. However, the problem came in seeking to understand what it means to find indecency in her. What does it mean to find her indecent? And therefore, there were two schools of thought that had, run, that, had, that had risen up as people have tried to interpret that. There was the more conservative view and the more liberal position. The more conservative view d- d- decided that divorce was allowed only in the case of sexual immorality, unfaithfulness, or immodest behavior. Indecency. Immodest dress. The more liberal view decided that it meant that divorce was allowed for anything the husband deemed displeasing to him. From a lack of intimacy to burnt toast. Whatever he deemed indecent. He was allowed. Both of these positions, beloved, were in error. And Jesus didn't take a side, but Jesus came to establish the side. Rather than falling prey to the trickery and the malicious nature of the question that is set before him by the Pharisees. Jesus reminds them that divorce is never God's design for his people. And the only reason that divorce takes place, he says, is because of sin. It's because the hardness of heart. And Moses allowed for a certificate of divorce because of the hardness of heart. 
Just as it is in our day, so has always been the case. The reason that Moses prescribed grounds for divorce was because of sin. Beloved, divorce is never, never without sin. Never without sin. There is no such thing as a no-fault divorce. There is no such thing as a no-sin divorce. The reason people divorce today, the same reason they have always divorced, because the hardness of hearts. What are hard hearts? Hard hearts are sinful, unrepentant hearts. Hard hearts are sinful and unrepentant hearts. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 5, the Bible says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Mark chapter 3 and verse 5, we see that hard hearts grieve God. Why? Because, beloved, hard hearts ignore the grace and the will of God. Hard hearts refuse to believe the gospel of God. Hard hearts justify wrong when clearly told what is right. Hard hearts suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness and ignore conscience. Hard hearts prepare and make time and ways for doing evil. Hard hearts love sin more than they love the Savior. And this is why the writer of Hebrews speaking to Christians, so-called Christians in the church says, today, if you would hear the spirit of the Lord, do not harden your heart. They were taking comfort in Moses allowing divorce and Jesus is saying, no, 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 do not take comfort in the fact that your hearts are hard. Because hard hearts mean no grace. Hard hearts mean no Christ. Moses is not letting them off, beloved. Moses is condemning them for their sin. This is, this is not a light matter, beloved. And Jesus wants them to understand that the issue is not how you understand divorce. The issue is how you understand marriage. Because if you get marriage wrong, then divorce is the inevitable consequence. You have to get marriage right. You get marriage right. And divorce isn't even an issue. 
This is what Jesus tells them. He describes marriage for them in three wonderful ways. He tells them the issue is not divorce. The issue is marriage. Let's talk about marriage. If you understood that God originates marriage, if you understood that God orchestrates marriage, if you understand that God alone terminates marriage, then the issue of divorce would not be an issue. God originates marriage. You see that? You see what Jesus does? The question is not what sin brought about, but the question is what has God ordained? And so Jesus takes them beyond Moses, beyond the law, and he takes them to God in creation. And while the Pharisees wanted to talk about Moses, Jesus wanted to talk about marriage. In other words, the reason that you think divorce is right is because you have gotten marriage wrong. And so what does he say? He says, God originates marriage. Why? Because marriage is God's design. Marriage is God's design. Jesus says in Genesis, he quotes Genesis, he goes to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. He said, God made them male and female. In the beginning, it was God who established the relationship between a man and a woman. And God brought them together. That's God's design. Tim Keller makes the point that it was God himself who officiated at the first wedding. This is God's design. Marriage makes families stronger. Marriage makes society safer. Marriage makes children secure. Marriage makes churches stronger. You know what? God not only officiates at the first marriage, he's going to participate in the last marriage. Revelation 19 and 7 and 8 speaks of the marriage supper of the Lamb as the bride, the church, has made herself ready to consummate her union with her groom, Jesus Christ. God officiated at the first one. God participates in the last one. The Bible opens up with a wedding. The Bible closes with a wedding. Because marriage is God's design. But it's not only God's design. Marriage is God's delight. It is God's delight. In understanding what God designed, we see that not only was creation good, but marriage was good as well. Marriage was a good thing when you remember that God looked around at all that he had created and he pronounced it good. But then he looked at Adam and he said, it is not good that Adam should be alone. And therefore, he made for Adam a helpmate. He made for Adam a mate. 
If being alone was not good, then what is good? It is good that Adam would have a wife. And when Adam first saw Eve, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 27, that Adam broke out in song. He broke out in a little Etta James. At last, my love has come alone. That's what it says. I didn't make that up. It's what it says. At last, he says, at last, my love has come alone. My lonely nights are over. Because it's not only God's design, beloved. Marriage is God's delight. And he delights for his people to be delighted in it. God originates marriage, but God not only originates marriage, God orchestrates marriage. And the one who has originated is also the one who has given guidelines and faithfulness in marriage. Genesis, and Jesus again quotes from Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Notice, notice there is a leaving. God determines that there must be a breaking away from dependency upon father and mother. There must be a separation. There must be a separation of priorities. There must be a separation of allegiances. A man must realize that though he will forever be a son, first and foremost, now he is a husband. A daughter must understand that though she will go on being a daughter, now first and foremost, she is a wife. There must be a leaving. Not only must there be a leaving, but then there must be a cleaving. There must be this joining together. But God determines now that the man and the woman most hold fast to each other. They must hold each other's hand. The son must let go of his mother's hand. The daughter must let go of her father's hand. And now they must join hands together and cleave, hold on to each other in perpetual bonding. Must be this leaving and cleaving because there is this uniting. Though they are two people, they come together and become one. Singularly focused upon each other and the promises that they have made to each other. They become one. Notice, notice the the permanence of it all. They are no longer two but one flesh. One. One. 
God joins them together and the two are no longer two, but they are one. And there are no provisions for them being two again. Just one. This is why Adam could say, this is flesh of my flesh. This is why Paul could say, husbands, love your wives as you love yourself. And to tear that woman away from you would be to tear your own flesh. Nobody, nobody goes around tearing their own flesh. The reason we get divorced is because we don't get marriage right. You don't understand that the two have become one flesh. And to rip them apart is to rip the flesh. John Stott puts it this way. The marriage bond is more than a human contract. It is a divine yoke. It is a divine yoke and therefore it is to be governed by God's word. When Jesus reminds them, we got to get marriage right. Understand that it's God who originates it. It is God who orchestrates it. It is God who determines how we are to live in the midst of it. And then it is God who only, only God has the right to terminate it. He who originates and orchestrates marriage is the only one who can terminate marriage. In other words, it's not over until God says it's over. It's not over until God says it's over. Whatever God has joined together. Let not man separate. Beloved, God does not command anyone to get married. God is not commanding anybody in here. He is not laying that obligation upon anyone that you must marry somebody. But he does say, And once you enter into that bond, he obligates and commands you not to forsake or leave that bond. So the question then is not divorce. The question is, should you even be getting married? Have you rightly understood what it means to marry? This is what Jesus is getting at. Why? Because it is God who joined them. He is the principal agent. If you came to God, listen, if you came to God and sought God's approval, his stamp of approval upon your union, 
don't go to the state to have that stamp removed. It is God who determines when it's over. You invited him in and he's there permanently. Divorce, beloved, is never in accordance with God's revealed will. You see the scriptures and how it portrays divorce and talks about divorce. It never talks about divorce in a positive light. Never. Because it is not a good thing. And therefore, that's why we press. That's why we want to press upon you, single people. We want to press upon you. If you're going to marry, if you sense the call, if you find yourself desiring to be married, be careful, be diligent that you marry in the Lord. Don't simply marry somebody because you think you love them or they love you. Marry someone who loves the Lord themselves. Marry someone who loves the church. Marry someone who is willing and ready to be accountable to others. Marry someone who lives in accordance with God's word. Marry someone who is daring to be different for Jesus. Why? Why? Because, as we all know, to divorce is to commit sin that has lasting consequences, particularly for remarriage. Divorce is a sin, and it has sweeping, sweeping repercussions. It weakens families. It weakens children. It weakens society. It weakens the church. It undermines the testimony of Christ. It denies the the power of what it means to be a Christian. Therefore, if you are here this morning, and even considering it, let me suggest to you, let me strongly suggest to you that you do not harden your heart. Turn in faith to Christ. Let not your heart be hardened. Hear, hear the spirit of the Lord saying to you, turn in faith to Jesus. Why? Because, beloved, divorce is a sin. That has repercussions for all those involved. It is a sin that causes sin. Because people who divorce are are, are most likely to get married again. And in explaining this to his disciples, Jesus says, listen. Should they marry again, they enter into an adulterous relationship. It is a sin that causes more sin. 
It is a sin that perpetuates sin. And even where you may be convinced that divorce may be allowed, maybe in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9. Maybe. If, 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 even if you would allow for that, it is never commanded, nor is it ever required. Instead, the difference that is the discipleship and the kingdom of God is that forgiveness is always the radical response of discipleship. If there is repentance and forgiveness, beloved, anything is possible. If there is repentance, if there is forgiveness, anything is possible. If you can be reconciled to God, you can be reconciled to your spouse. If you, if you can be forgiven by God, surely you can forgive others, especially your spouse. Now, I say that knowing and understanding that when relationships go bad and and sour and bitterness and the root of bitterness comes in, the pain is real. And I don't want to trivialize this morning, not for a moment, the pain that is a husband and wife relationship that has turned bitter. It has turned sour. The most, the most dear and precious relationship to you turns from love to hate. From love to indifference. From love to spite. Too many of us have known that. And because of that, some of you have been divorced and some of you have been remarried. And let me be clear. Divorce is a sin. It is a sin of sweeping repercussions. It weakens families. It hurts children. It weakens society. It weakens the church. It weakens your testimony. And yet, at the same time, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Is it serious? Yes. Does it cause seemingly irreparable damage? Yes. Does it have perpetual consequences? Yes. Is it renounced and resisted at all costs? Yes. But is it unforgivable? No. No. If David can be forgiven for his murder and betrayal and disobedience to God, if Peter can be forgiven for his blasphemy and denial of Christ, if Paul can be forgiven for his persecution of Christ and the church, then your divorce 
can be forgiven because there is a grace that is greater than all our sin. And it's difficult for us to do. And it's difficult for us to understand this morning. And that's because we really don't grasp the magnitude of God's grace. The fact of the matter is, even in divorce, you are not going to outsend the grace of God. And the temptation for me this week was try to downplay that because I don't want you to give the impression that it's okay to divorce because it is not. But God forbid... And anyone would leave here and think that just because they are divorced and remarried, they are beyond the grace of God. You are not. There is a grace that is greater than all our sin. Grace, grace, marvelous grace. A grace that will pardon. And cleanse within. Grace, grace is God's grace. Grace that is greater. And not just some, not just most, but all, all our sin. What does God require? All he requires is that you come as a child admitting your sin confessing your sin and come to him as a child in faith and in trust you see this and Jesus moves from marriage in the kingdom to children in the kingdom after Jesus has settled in and had discussed this issue of marriage and divorce with his disciples, the many people start bringing their children to him. Start bringing all their children to him. The sense that small children were coming to him. So that Jesus could bless them and touch them. And Jesus once again took this opportunity to teach his disciples the nature of the kingdom of God. And what were the disciples doing? They were hindering the children from coming to Jesus, amazingly. Who were bringing the children to Jesus? Who who were these bringing the children? Well, it definitely wasn't the disciples. It should have been the disciples. But the disciples were not bringing the children to Jesus. They were hindering the children from coming to Jesus. Apparently, the parents were bringing their children to Jesus. The word there for small children, even infant children. And what were the disciples doing? The disciples were saying, no, no, not our teacher. Don't bring your children to our teacher. Our teacher has no time for kids. Didn't you just see what he just did? Didn't you just hear what he just did? He just refuted and dispatched with the Pharisees. Our teacher runs in deep theological circles. He's got no time for kids. He's dealing with deep theological and kingdom issues here. Jesus seeing his disciples rebukes them, becomes indignant with them. 
And then he gives a word of invitation. And he says, let the children come. Let the children come. The true disciples are not those who hinder people from coming to Jesus. But true disciples are those who rather bring people to Jesus. Because they hear Jesus saying over and over again, let them come, let them come, let them come. For such is, such belong the kingdom of God. These are those for whom he came. In fact, Jesus says, unless you become like these, you will not know the kingdom of God. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. Married, single, divorced, remarried, whoever or whatever, we all must become the same. But we all must become like children. How do we become like children? Well, we come like children when we come Offering nothing. Offering nothing. Children bring nothing to the table. I know this for a fact. They have nothing. They just get. They just want. How many times have I sat down with my child and one of my children and the first thing out of their mouth is, Daddy can. Daddy, I want. Daddy, can I have? And I say, have you ever just sat down and said, Daddy, how you doing? It's always, always, daddy, can we, daddy, can I have? They want, they want, they bring nothing to the table. Except to get. That frustrates me because I am a wicked and ungodly father. It doesn't frustrate God. In fact, God says in Isaiah chapter 55, Brother Terrence, come, everyone who thirsts, come, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. You just come, come as children because children have nothing to bring. You just come and get that's why the hymn writer, Augustus Toplady, could say, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to them for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, lest I die. I have nothing to bring. This is what Jesus says the kingdom is. Those who come bringing nothing. But they come as children desiring only to get from God. His love, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, his comfort, his assurance. Come as little children who bring nothing come as little children who trust. You know why Jesus says you must come as a child because children trust. They believe Jesus can do it. 
It's grown people who don't believe. It's us grown folks who are skeptical. When my children were small, I could pull all kind of tricks off of them. As they got older, they stopped believing those tricks. When they were younger, they thought daddy could do anything. Now they have a hard time believing daddy can do anything. Oh, beloved. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, without faith it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who come to him. Children represent the attitude of the kingdom is because children believe. They still believe all things are possible. They still believe that there are no limitations on what can happen. Those who come into the kingdom must come as children and believe that in God all things are possible. That in God, marriages can be restored. That in God, wayward children can come home. That in God, I can find comfort in him and I don't have to chase after the things of the world. That in God, I can be contented in my singleness until God so brings someone along who loves him. In God, All things are possible if you only believe. So all Jesus requires is that we believe. Let not conscience make you linger, songwriter says. Not of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is you feel your need of him. True disciples don't feel a need to fit in. They feel a need for Jesus. That's all. That's all they want. They just want Jesus. And every day they feel their need for him. That's the kingdom of God. And all Jesus says, if that's you, then you come. You come. You come. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, these are difficult words and yet we rejoice in them because they are full of your grace to us, your love and your mercy to us. How you desire us to move away from sin into Christ and his kingdom. How you offer forgiveness and mercy and grace that covers 
all of our sin. How you invite us to come to your kingdom as children. Wounded, weary, and sad. And how we can find in Christ a resting place. And he delights to make us glad. Thank you this morning for your word, Lord. If there's anyone here this morning, Father, who needs to be reminded that forgiveness is available, who needs to hear the invitation anew, come. Might you offer to him by your spirit ears to hear and hearts to receive the glories that are the kingdom of God. Oh Lord, we pray that no one leaves here without the comfort of knowing Jesus. We thank you. We glory and we honor you. In Christ we pray. Amen.